As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And this is Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. Welcome to another episode of Seriously. As we're recording today, some really sad news has broken this morning that David Bowie sadly passed away, which is just so sad. And it's also, I feel like for me, it's the the first proper big kind of celebrity death where A, I really care about the person and their work, but B, where I'm fully experiencing it just on the internet. And my sadness is also tinged with some fury at... Maybe this is harsh of me, but the the sort of outpouring of what David Bowie meant to me on Twitter. Well, I kind of like that because I, I really feel like that's what pop music is about. Like people take it and they relate it to their own life. And that's why it's such a great medium. Yeah, I see that. And that's partly why I say maybe I'm being a bit harsh, because I think the bits that anger me are when I see like, I don't know, older white men I don't particularly respect also liking the same thing I like. Yeah, that's and, the real frustration of it. And an older white men love David Bowie. Yeah, and this is the thing where, of course, they're allowed to, and that's fine. What they're not allowed to do is own the conversation about it, yeah. which I think is perhaps a separate issue about who gets commissioned to write and yeah, talk about and it in the who, next few days. Yeah, and voice gets, yeah. But, um, but they are allowed on their own personal Twitter accounts to be so, sad. And, I remember walking into the record shop and... Yeah, yeah. yeah. But for some reason that makes me cross. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's just crazy as well because obviously Black Star came out on mm. Friday, which is birthday. And the producer has said like, yeah, this was a deliberate, you know, goodbye from... Which is just... Yeah. It's, it's just heartbreaking. But what is lovely, I think, is seeing how so many people are just like, wow, he meant so much to me. One of the things that really pushed me over the edge this morning was Kanye West tweeting like, wow, he was one of my biggest inspirations. Yeah. And like, obviously such different artists in so many ways, but like... Something that unites Kanye West and David Cameron in Greece <laughs> is something truly incredible. Uh, David Ca- if Dave- oh, that does annoy me. I know, but say he's allowed to like you too. Right? David Cameron is a pie. 
<laughs> anyway, other massive pop culture things that we have hitherto sort of ignored. You went to see Star Wars this week. Yes, I finally went to see Star Wars on Saturday. Which I've still not seen. Like, I, I've seen all the other six films, but ages ago and was not massively invested in the universe or the story, which is why I left it till now to bother to go and see it. But I really, really liked it. The Force Awakens go. is just a great movie. And I can totally see that if you if you went to see it having only the like vestigial cultural knowledge of Star Wars that exists mm-hmm. in our conversation anyway, not having seen any of the films, you'd still have a really great time. Yeah. Because it's, I think this is probably what J.J. Abrams has brought to the franchise more than anything else, is that he's made a standalone film. Yeah. Well, that's really good. And also so many people I know who I wouldn't be like, oh yeah, they probably are into Star Wars, have just absolutely loved it. Daisy Ridley and John Boyega are both absolutely fantastic in it. Actually, I think the thing that moved me the most about it was Carrie Fisher. Partly, she's really good in the film but also I then went home and watched all of the sort of interviews and stuff I'd saved up about it yeah these I've enjoyed the incidental coverage Mm. this was sort of devastating this interview that Carrie Fisher gave about the role where the presenter asks her so you know apparently George Lucas himself had to persuade you to come back for this film um was that true and she was like no I'm an actress over 50 someone called me offering me work of course I wanted to do it. That's so funny. She did a tweet that I just absolutely adored. You know, everyone was talking about the fact that everyone was like, oh yeah, she's aged so well, or like, oh no, she's aged badly. And she did a really good tweet that was just like, can you stop talking about this because it makes me feel bad. <laughs> and she did a tweet that was like, my body is a brain bag, it hauls me around to those places and in front of faces where there's something to say or see, which I just thought was the best tweet of all mm. time. I was like, that's how I feel. My body is a brain bag. I love you. And in the film, she she plays Leia is now a general of the Republic, the ultimate authority figure. And also there are quite a lot of scenes that I think are references to lots and lots of classic sci-fi films where she's in a kind of control room, like controlling a like space mission that's happening somewhere else. Maybe the third or fourth scene of that that we saw, I suddenly realised how weird it was to be watching a scene where not only was the commander a woman, but like several of the technicians she was giving orders to and mm. the people who were like bringing her urgent messages for also women. And I was like, wow. This is great. This is like real life. This is, <laughs> this is great, you know. And John Boyega as well. I've loved just the fact that he's now a celebrity and like everything he's done has been so great. Like seeing him at the premiere, like absolutely overwhelmed with joy. And the fact that he apparently took Harrison Ford for dinner in Peckham before. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen all the, all the like, he seems to have this running joke going where when people ask him about Harrison Ford, he's like, yeah, he's my best friend. <laughs> he like said, he said it in so many interviews and then there's like, uh, they're on a panel, him and Harrison Ford and he's like, yeah, well, you know, Harrison's my best friend and he's like, I barely know you. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> laugh so much. Anyway, what we are mainly here to discuss this week is Netflix phenomenon that is making a murderer. Yeah, it's crazy. I, like, everyone I know is watching it and obsessed with it and, like, making jokes like, I can't go shopping anymore because I stand there and stare at the innocent juice bottles like, Avery, <laughs> Avery is innocent. <laughs> so if you have either put off or so far escaped this, this is a documentary series that has recently landed on Netflix. It's a kind of true crime series to do with the life and supposed crimes of a man called Stephen Avery, who is from Wisconsin and who was imprisoned wrongly for rape and sexual assault, then released 18 years after his conviction because of DNA evidence. And then, and spoiler alert from hence onwards... Yeah, this is revealed in the, at the end of the first episode. But... He then goes back to prison and is still in prison for committing a murder of a woman. There isn't one iota of physical evidence in this case that connects Stephen Avery to it. In fact, the sheriff was told by the police, you have the wrong guy. 
Stephen Avery spent 18 years in prison for something he didn't do. 18 years. 18 years. DNA had come through indicating that he had not committed the crime. Law enforcement officers realized that they had screwed up big time. We were getting ready to bring a lawsuit. $36 million. Manitowoc County itself and the sheriff and the DA would be on the hook for those damages. They're not handing that kind of money over to Steve Avery. I did tell him, be careful. They are not even close to being finished with you. Do we have a body or anything yet? I don't believe so. We have Stephen Avery in custody, though. One of the things I feel like I should clarify from the start is this is not a story about, uh, you know, oh, she cried rape. Because that could, would turn me off instantly. Yeah. I would be like, no, I'm not interested. He did it. So there is no doubt that this very brutal, you know, attack and rape of a woman happened. The DNA evidence later reveals that it was definitely somebody else and, and not Stephen Avery. And then is convicted. Yeah, and he, so he's out for... So uh, Stephen Avery's in prison for 18 years for that crime and when he's released obviously the guy who actually did do it Gregory Allen is imprisoned for it but obviously he's been out for those 18 years well and they do in the first couple of episodes present another victim yeah um, who was attacked basically because the police put the wrong guy behind bars exactly so you're on Stephen Avery's side not just for Stephen Avery's sake but for the victims of these mm. rapes sake as well and actually one of the most touching things about the first couple of episodes I thought was the woman who's attacked her name's Penny Bernstein because of all the subsequent inquiries into how the police misconduct could have happened, how the miscarriage of justice happened, she has to testify at several mm. of these. And this means that she and Stephen Avery spend quite a lot of time in the same room. Yeah. And they get on and like they they hug and they yeah, kind and of... Yeah, she apologises to him and he apologises to her. She was kind of... It seems like she was pressured into giving a description. Yes, and then that was twisted. That was... Yeah. Basically, they wanted Stephen Avery behind bars is the, is, is the idea that you get from watching this programme. After this terrible miscarriage of justice, obviously, Stephen Avery has lawyers trying to get him some compensation. I think he's suing them for 36 million and he also wants, like, immediate compensation of, like, $400,000. And he also has sort of allies in government like in the state legislature there are people saying we want to compensate him like they pass a special bill to be able to give him some money immediately before the civil yeah, case is so, so that he can pay for his lawyers yeah so there, there are these two lawyers who jump on his case straight away and who are really really great and then while this whole thing is going on while he's you know suing is it manitowoc county, county yeah this kind of small branch of government that is at fault while that's going on basically a woman goes missing who was last seen talking to Stephen Avery. She's a photographer. Stephen Avery, his job, both before he goes into prison for 18 years and when he comes out, he works on a, like, what do you call it? It's like an auto salvage yard. Salvage so his, yard. His, his whole family runs this massive yard where they, like, take sort of broken down cars and fix them up and yeah, then sell, sell them. them on again. Yeah. So obviously he has a standing arrangement where this woman comes, takes photos of his car, they go into Auto Trader, he can advertise the car in Auto Trader. Mm-hmm. She does that for all different kinds of people. He is her last appointment of the day, and then she stops answering her calls. She completely disappears off the face of the earth. And then days and days later, they find a body on his yard. Mm. And they find the car, her car somewhere. They eventually well, find yeah. the car all covered up in in branches and stuff. So someone's clearly made an effort to Conceal, disguise yeah. it. The body, what they actually find, it remains like bits of bone and stuff. And it's been burnt along with some other things. They also search Stephen Avery's house. They don't find anything. And then they do another search a few days later with some of the same people from Manitowoc County and a key is discovered to the car. And that's very weird because 
some police members are insistent that that key was not there when they mm. originally searched the house. So the key has appeared in over time. They also find blood in the car, which is a match for Stephen Avery. So all the evidence points to Stephen Avery. And basically the show is about them trying to uncover what Stephen Avery always insists and what some of his human rights lawyers also insist is a massive framing. Yeah from the Manitowoc County government, which is just crazy to me, if that's true. I mean, I, I haven't watched... I've watched the first three episodes, so I'm not all the way into it yet. But the the idea to me that this kind of large scale... Because I was saying that I feel like when you hear about people getting framed for crimes, you think about the police, like, putting some drugs in their pocket when they've already yeah, arrested them sort of, to try and justify the, the arrest later. spontaneous and a bit shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah, something that you can imagine, perhaps they panicked. Yeah. And they were like, oh my God, I'm going to get in so much trouble. I'm just going to do this and then everything will be fine. But if this narrative turns out to be the most believable narrative, it's insane. Well, it's, I agree, it's totally insane. But I feel like I've it's already been foreshadowed for me. I've watched two episodes, not even three, but in the way they behaved... In the first instance with the the rape case where the lawyers bring quite a bit of evidence that they they had intelligence that this Gregory Allen guy who actually did the crime had done it like eight years or something before Stephen... Well, he'd um, been in prison for ten years and they Gregory Allen was arrested and intimated that someone else was in prison for and his crimes. In a different county and they rang up... Manitowoc County and said we think we've got this guy and they were like no no we're fine we've got the guy in prison yeah and they, ne- and they never passed it um, on to his lawyers who were appealing his case at that time and then when the day he's finally released they write all these memos about it basically trying to cover themselves and I feel like there's a, a tendency towards conspiracy yeah there that exactly I can see that thread following through into a much larger in the same way that I mean not in this case but when someone gets involved in petty crime and then gets drawn deeper and deeper and deeper as it all just snowballs out of control, I can see that happening here where initially the cover-up is quite small just to, like, protect their reputations and then it just spirals out of control until they're, like, (laughs) trying to take a man's life away. I can see that happening. There's also some real characters in it. One of my favourite, like, he's the worst. I say favourite, he's the worst. One of my favourite characters, if we're going to call them that, in it is this guy, Eugene Korsh. I think that's how you say it, yeah. Who is involved in the identification of Stephen Avery for this original rape oh, and he guy. does he does a drawing so like he does a drawing you looks know, like a lion. what's it called like an identikit style well like I don't know what the name is but it's when a victim gives a verbal account of what someone looks like and the artist is trained to turn that into a picture <laughs> right. that police can use for research and this guy like he's no Picasso <laughs> it's a very like average it looks like a lion yeah it's like quite a bad drawing of Stephen Avery and it's so clearly been drawn with this man in mind you can tell from from a photograph yeah from a photograph and there's a photograph so basically this guy is so proud of his drawing because it's the first one he ever does his identification drawing that he frames it next to mugshots of stephen avery and puts it in his house and like has it on the wall in his house and when people are like questioning him about like where this description came from because it's implied that a woman with a personal vendetta as soon as the rape happened said oh it sounds like Stephen Avery he's a dirty guy I bet it was him he is being questioned on how he came to this drawing and he's like I'm just a vessel. I'm just a vessel. You know, she 
she the victim said stuff to me and i put it down you know i'm just like he's some crazy artist i saw someone so saying that, that that picture is a bad drawing of a man but a good drawing of a lion yeah that's exactly what it is is exactly what it is oh, yeah it God. does just look like a man it reminds me actually do you remember in bake-off what's his face the lion bread made a, a bread that <laughs> was shaped like a lion bread, yeah that also looks like stephen yeah, Avery, according to this but that also speaks to the style in which this is made yeah let's step back a bit and talk about it as a program rather than just like a crazy incident of things it is incredibly shot and the way they construct the narrative is very very intricate and so far pretty chronological yeah so we, we're well. kind of experiencing it in order as mm. Stephen Avery did I suppose He's yeah. the, he is the protagonist we are supposed to identify with him but it's it's the product of I think I read 10 years of coverage so it's not like the documentary makers they also experienced it chronologically. They didn't yeah. like, join in at a point and look back on the story. They were there with From it. From the beginning. That's for, one of the amazing years. things about this whole series is that it wasn't like, wow, this is a crazy story. We have to find out how it happened. Mm. These people were investigating a fairly low-key story that escalated and escalated and escalated. And for that reason, the level of access is insane. Yeah. They have like loads of footage from the time on the car yard. They've got loads of interviews with people who are very, very intimately connected to the case, talking fairly freely mm. about what they remember happening on the day and stuff. And it also gives it this very like particular look because all the footage is from that time. It's sort of grainy. And and yeah. I suppose that goes with the fact that this is happening in like incredibly rural Wisconsin, a place yeah. that isn't generally on your screens for any reason at all. So it does, in a way, feel very alien. These are dispatches from an alien world, it feels sometimes. And the whole style of it is very slow, quite quiet. Like, there's not a lot of underscoring music or voice. Mm. There's no voiceovers, really, at all. I think the reason it's so popular and people are so grabbed by it is because the makers of it are also so totally immersed in it. Yeah, and this thing of doing it chronologically and giving you a little bit of information each time means that it really speaks to that deepest part of you that's sort of like interested in conspiracy mm. and that you're like wait what about this but what about this but what about this that is why it has been so addictive and so many people have been like yeah i've watched like seven episodes in a row i also think it's done in such a human way so you spend a lot of time with stephen avery and with his family and you become quite aware of their vulnerability in a mm. deep way because it seems like they are being taken advantage of by people who have a you know better grasp on terminology and have more money there's a great line in this maybe the second episode where you hear as you do in serial the like this is a collect call from an inmate from the manitowoc yeah. county jail he's on the phone to his mum and dad and they're trying to encourage him to keep going this is when he's been arrested for the second crime he's like no i'm like i'm, I'm ending it all i can't cope with this and they're like no come on we're gonna win and he's like poor people lose poor people lose and you're like oh god it really is mm. this guy you know they don't have much and they don't have a great awareness of their rights either. Like, you know, when he's withheld, lawyers are withheld from him and stuff, and he doesn't really understand that that's not allowed and those kinds of things. And they are pretty vulnerable people. Yeah. And part of the reason why you feel like the whole thing starts in the first place is because, it, you know, it's such a small town that Avery family is well known. Um, some of his relatives, have, mm. and generally his family is just looked down on. Yeah, and uh, there's a lot of small you know, town gossip about yeah. the whole thing, isn't and, there? And there's a, I thought it was really interesting the way they brought out the dynamic in the rape case stuff, where the woman who was raped is quite a kind of prominent and upstanding middle class mm. figure in the area. Yeah, and she's um, beautiful and she's got gorgeous children. And, and she's and... married to a man who's like a prominent local businessman and, yeah. she, and she's very involved in charity work and she's generally like a model citizen. She's a bit of an angel, yeah. Um, and, and Stephen Avery's, he, you know, they he lives like in a trailer on a like 
by mm. an auto salvage yard and mm. a big beard and he's got like a really big ramshackle family mm. and obviously they're just like one step up from total hicks and mm. and you just feel like the power dynamic there is so clear they didn't dress like everybody else they didn't have education like other people the avery family didn't fit into the community Penny Bernstein was everything that Stephen wasn't. So just think of the two of them side by side. Yeah, it's you know? it's complicated, isn't it? Because also these these are all these are all crimes against women. Yeah, and obviously you know violence against women is a disease that no doesn't know class mm. and stuff like that. So on the one hand, if Stephen Avery did do it, there's a very clear patriarchal power dynamic. But on the other hand, there's all these other power dynamics going on at the same time, and it's really complicated. And they are, t- to be fair to the filmmakers like investigating that with a real mm. level of nuance that mm. yes i think it's brilliant i'm loving it and it does remind me a lot of the jinx which i haven't actually watched but i really want to it yeah. definitely sounds really good the jinx is like a slightly more hollywood version glossy version of making a murderer i think mm. So the next thing we're going to talk about is slightly less topical. It's Alison Bechdel's graphic novel slash memoir, Fun Home. The title comes from the fact that she grew up around a funeral home, right? Yeah, and that was the family nickname for it, was the fun home. The fun home, because her dad is basically an undertaker. Mm. And it's about her childhood, her relationship with her father, her leaving Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. To go to university and sort of discovering her queer identity and all those things kind of mixed in together, along with a lot of kind of meta stuff about the reading she was doing at the time Mm. and comparisons to other literature that were involved in her life at the time so that's quite a rambling description of it but I hope that's that's fairly accurate and that last thing you mentioned about the sort of literary allusions and references in it was the biggest revelation to me actually I think ashamedly I'd not really ever thought that a graphic novel could be so explicitly literary Mm, it definitely Um, is literary it really is like there's whole page long digressions about the Henry James play that her mother was in at university 
diversity and how this bears upon the like dynamic that her parents have and you know it's it's very as you say meta and very kind of layered like that yeah and her dad is a literary figure to her so often, and self-consciously so as yeah, well he's exactly. kind of myth-making about himself in the mode like he's really into Fitzgerald yeah, and Joyce and mm. that sort of like Stephen Dedalus style of mythmaking. And so a lot of her interactions with him become about books. Mm. So when it's being literary, it's also being deeply personal and about what, well, as these things often are, but about how that was a, a vehicle for her to explore her own personal relationships. And it's interesting because her, one of the things that's, that's most sort of interesting about it is that her dad is neither a figure that you can particularly admire or a figure that you can really like hate he's he's a complex father figure for her because there's sort of a revelation that he's sleeping with young boys yeah uh and has had other relationships with men as well and her mother's aware of this yeah so that's difficult for her coming Mm. to the understanding that her dad's gay but also that he's been cheating on his wife and there's some moral stuff in there that's not she's not that happy about and, and then, also she finds this out i found this to be really devastating actually the point so she comes out to her parents in a letter mm. that she sends and then i think one of the first responses back she gets is a phone call from her mother basically trumping her and saying like oh yeah you know your dad sleeps with men yeah and in a way he gets in the way of her own coming <laughs> yeah. out it's really really strange and it's not something she's ever it's not even like she's been able to have a positive gay role model in mm. her life because that has been information that's been totally unavailable to her it's fair to say she was finding her relationship with her dad fairly confusing anyway. Yeah, everything... I mean, she really evokes very well the kind of icy feeling. Mm. And like, like there's, this, there's this whole page where all of the panels are to do with all of the times she saw her parents show physical affection towards each other. Oh. And that's twice yeah. in her entire life. Which and is... she draws both of the, both of the times. And it's, it's awful. It's so devastating. Yeah, but that's funny because things like that I've, I found really relatable reading this. I did, obviously can't relate to a lot of the threads about coming out and having a gay parent and those kinds of things. But she does evoke really well some of just the general trials and tribulations of like being uncertain about your parents and their relationships with each other. And, and the idea that I think you have... This, I mean, no matter what the circumstances are, I feel like this happens to everybody, that you go from when you're a child, you think of your parents only in relation to you. Mm. You think that they are here because of me. Right? Mm. And then you grow up and you realise that your parents are autonomous individuals with their own They're lives nice. and thoughts. Yeah. And that can be both a good and a bad thing. Like, yeah. Good in the sense that you obviously get a much less self-centred view of the world and can perhaps appreciate interests and traits in your parents that you didn't really bother to notice before, but bad in the way that Alison Bechdel writes about it, in that there can be whole strands of their lives they've kept hidden from everybody, Mm. and the revealing of it can be really destructive. I love the way that she manages to work literature so seamlessly into that, because you get panels where she's got um, drawings just of uh, an interaction between her and her dad, say her dad lifting her up and spinning her Mm. around or something, and the, it's not a speech bubble, but the sort of n- narrating section of text above each panel is relating the, the plot of a novel to you. So you, you're drawing that comparison yeah. yourself because of the placement. So it's not that, like, whack you over the head. Like, I felt like my dad was almost Stephen Dedalus in that moment, but obviously it is doing that work for you. It's the first graphic novel I've read where I was really struck by the quality of the writing as well as the art. It's so so beautifully written. Her language is just really, really clever and really evocative. And then, as you say, that runs in parallel with her drawings. Mm. Which are very simple, but they're very atmospheric. 
So I, I feel like because they're they're almost black and white, they're not, are they? They're sort of um Well, what's interesting, greeny. I found, it's all in a kind of greeny, bluey palette. And mm. then very occasionally something is actually in black and white. Mm. And it's normally when it's something from the past mm. or like, like from the past in the narrative she's telling at that point. So if it's like a photograph she's found of her dad, right. that will be in proper black and white. Yeah. Or like, the, I really like the bit where, so there's a lot, especially in the first couple of chapters, there's a lot about the house that she grows up in, mm-hmm. which is like this kind of grand aesthetic project of her father where he's obsessed with restoring this house to its kind of original glory. And he's obsessed with this to the exclusion of like the personal relationships in his life. Yeah. There's a, bit where she draws half a page of when the house was first built like in the 1860s or Mm. whatever and that's in actual black and white because it's in the past yeah and i think because of her that that sort of limited color palette a lot of what she's working with is is light Mm. so you get real sense of like times of day and things like that because of how you know how much shadowy or and that for me makes it really evocative in terms of atmosphere because you get these sort of shots where she's like confused in her uni bedroom sort of in the half light you know on the phone or whatever and you also get these shots of you know bright childhood memory style light pouring in through the windows her sat with her dad style Mm. things that was pretty impressive to me that she was able to suggest so much with so little yeah to suggest sort of emotional qualities Mm. as well as just factually this is a picture of what happened Mm. this is also somehow how i felt about it at the same time and it's it's a great sort of mediation on growing up because it's very nostalgic but quite bitter at the same Mm. time there's a lot of looking back and reflecting obviously the whole the whole project is that because it's a it's a coming of age memoir and Alison Bexell is obviously not a teenager anymore but even within that each main narrative is constantly reflecting and projecting and stuff which is obviously just a very teenage impulse yeah it's a really beautiful book I don't know I feel kind of sad that I only read it recently that Mm. I feel like like I feel like we say this a lot on the podcast but I would have absolutely devoured it as a teenager and found it really helpful yeah definitely I think and I sort of hope that there are for for teenagers out there now some there you've got someone in your life giving you this for your 15th birthday yeah I hope the bookshops are curating that stand for teenagers well things like this so yeah I highly encourage everyone teenage and otherwise to get hold of it and have a read of it I suppose it relates a bit to something we talked about in a previous episode Persepolis yeah I think I compared them at the time yeah is also a kind of graphic novel memoir by a woman looking back on her childhood and teenage experience although that has the kind of Iranian context as well which is different and also diary a teenage girl which we talked about yeah please can you recommend us some more teen yeah you know teen graphic novel things graphic memoirs because that is absolutely our jam <laughs> yeah definitely In the last episode, I recommended Anna, the film Quartet, starring Maggie Smith and other excellent people. Anna, what did you make of it? Yeah, I will watch anything with Maggie Smith in, and she was brilliant in this. Also really enjoyed Billy Connolly's performance as the kind of dirty old man. <laughs> yeah, so, so the premise of the film, just briefly, is that it's set in a retirement home 
that's run as a kind of charitable institution for famous musicians fallen on harder times in their old age, really. Which, as an aside, I spent a lot of the film being like, mm, would this, could this really, is this feasible as a project? <laughs> Economically, how does yeah, this work? Yeah, yeah. And, the, and the sort of action of the film is based around the fact that once a year, they give this big gala performance on Verdi's birthday yeah. as partly, I think, to give the old people something to do and partly as a fundraiser for the home. Yeah. And so they're all working towards their performances. And we have Michael Gambon in sort of vaguely Orientalist like outfits sort of presiding over so he's everything. the director. Yeah. yeah. It's in a sort of weird like 1920s artsy style. And there are lots of different types of musicians. You know, there are like entire string quartets, people who do jazz, like singers, opera singers, all different kinds What's of What's the style of song that we see like the Vicar of Dibley guy doing? That I think that they that like must musical? I think they're meant to be musical stars. Yeah. It's that actually for me is the saddest bit in it. Really? Oh, I don't know why. They say they sing underneath the arches. And it's just I obviously wasn't paying attention to the point in the lyrics. I don't was know. I? <laughs> for some reason I just found that completely devastating. And oh. then they also do that song, Are You Having Any Fun? Yeah, that's, that's what I remember. Is, yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. Great trumpet in that. It's a whole film stuffed full of older actors that you know. Yeah. Really great, great cast. Also a lot of the people in the in the home who are aren't like major speaking parts are ex opera singers. Yeah. So you get there's a lot of music. Yeah. In the film, from the people in the film. Yeah. So I am not someone who's like massively into classical music or opera or a lot of the styles that it goes on in this, don't have that much knowledge of it. And there were bits that I thought were really funny. I liked the humour in this film. Like, I liked all the bits where they were joking about getting older and that kind of thing. I was not like massively moved by it as a film. Well, you know, I no. found it really, really sad. I think because, so the the main character interaction in it is between Maggie Smith's character who is the last so the quartet of the title is a quartet of opera singers who've made a very famous recording of Verdi's opera Rigoletto Mm -hmm. at the kind of peak of their careers and she's the the fourth of the quartet to arrive. The presumption you get from it is that she was the biggest star of the four and indeed like of the I think you're supposed to think for those who are into this that she's a kind of Joan Sutherland type figure i.e. Joan Sutherland being like one of the biggest opera singers of the 20th century like right most famous maggie smith is so excellent at acting that mix of pride and vulnerability where she often says things like oh i remember i did 12 curtain calls that night also in fact there's a moment where tom courtney's character said i did 12 curtain calls that night and she says you did nine i did 12 (laughs) and she's like very good at at those sort of like boastful moments Mm. i really enjoyed those Tom Courtney and Maggie Smith are two of the quartets. It's revealed that they were also married and just before they got married. So they'd been in a relationship for about a year. Yeah. They had a sort of brief separation when she went to go and sing at La Scala in Milan. Mm-hmm. And while she was there, she had a brief fling with another opera singer. And then mm-hmm. she, t- she tells him about it the day they get married. And he does not respond well. And, and then what, they're married for a matter of hours Yeah, or then he leaves her and they, they get yeah. annulled. What's so interesting, just bear with me, brief operatic context for this, right? So the quartet in Rigoletto, which is one of the most famous bits of this kind of ensemble singing in mm-hmm. an opera, because you basically got f- the four main characters, they're all singing about something different. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. And they're also, the way it's set up on stage is, if you look at it on YouTube, I will link to my favourite performance of this, which is Joan Sutherland and Pavarotti. Two of them are on one side of a wall and two of them on the other side of the wall. So right. sometimes in the music... 
it's two duets and sometimes mm-hmm. it's a quartet. And what's happening in the story at this point is Rigoletto's like this court jester. He has a beautiful daughter called Gilda. There's a, a sort of playboy duke that Rigoletto works for. And then the fourth in a quartet is like a kind of woman in an inn that the duke is trying to seduce. The duke has seduced Rigoletto's daughter Gilda and has like ruined her. She loves him. This quartet comes right at the end of the opera where basically... Rigoletto shows his daughter that the Duke has been unfaithful to her right. with this other woman by they hide behind the wall of the inn and like hear him seducing the other woman. So the context for this is that the voice parts are such that Tom Courtney's character will have played the philandering, faithless duke, mm. and Maggie Smith played the pure, Gilda. deceived Gilda. Yeah. So their their real life infidelity roles are reversed. reversed. So that's and the whole of Rigoletto is about infidelity mm-hmm. and faithlessness. So mm-hmm. that's the kind of undercurrent that the music is giving you on top of this. The real okay, life so there's story. like a kind of grim irony going on yes, at the same exactly. time. Exactly. So I read it as, so she's, Maggie Smith's character is very reluctant. So what Michael Gammon as the director wants them, the quartet, to reform and sing this piece of music for the gala performance. So that's why she's so insulted. So part of the reason she doesn't want to do it is because she's old and she's worried she won't be good anymore. Part of the reason, I think, is also that she feels like it's, rubbing salt into the wound it's slightly shameful of her it's to shameful do that, of yeah. her to uh, to assume the character of this kind of pure defenseless character when actually she feels like she's the opposite yeah okay that makes a lot more sense like that was lost on me so I, that, that is one of the i think failings of the film is that it doesn't explain that at no all. but maybe that's why it's nice for some people who are into opera to yeah, watch but it and I be don't, like ah oh, i don't I'm feel like this. you should make a film that's like an inside joke that about mm. three people will get maybe so yeah. i do think that's a, a failing that that does help, right? That is, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's interesting. There's there's a weird bit where Tom Courtney is sort of giving a lecture to some young people, some like young, mm. diverse people, and he's like chatting to this guy about rap, and he's like, "Will you explain what rap is to me?" Just that scene, I just found so terrifically embarrassing, where Tom Courtney's character is like describing opera in a very sentimental way about how opera is just about emotion in the same way that rap is just about emotion and the, but then also they get this guy to do a, a really bad rap like mm-hmm. this character does like a terrible rap and like everyone's like really impressed and i'm like oh my god i really hope there are like old people watching this film being like ah oh, so that's what rap is because yeah. it's like that's not what rap is oh god <laughs> this is dreadful so there's like things like that where i was like okay this this for me is like not hitting the button in the way that I would like it to. But then what I did like was the sort of bits that were less about music and more conversational and about getting older. You must understand I was someone once. Why do you persist in flirting with me? Older man, vintage wine, seasoned wood. (laughs) Them sort of strolling in the gorgeous grounds of this ridiculous retirement home. (laughs) 
Which is, is that a thing? Are there, are there retirement homes for particular professions? I don't know. Is that a thing? I don't know. If you, would you want that as an old person when you'd finished like, doing your career to then just like, continue I do, networking I do wonder until about you that. died? One, one of the things that I think is most realistic about the way, because Maggie Smith's character is very, very reluctant to have to go and live there, mm. is that every, everywhere she turns, she's confronted by a professional rival from the past. Yeah. And so every, every single waking moment is still competitive, even though she doesn't want to do the thing that she was competing with. <laughs> Must be really unpleasant. Yeah, I mean, you know, I love my job, but I don't think I'd want to, like, get to 65 or 75 or whatever, have finished working, and then be like, well, next I'm just going to go and continue networking until my deathbed with people that I've already spent the yeah. last 30 years of my life talking to about Twitter, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that such a place really exists. No. But it's originally based on a play, actually, which... I never got to see. It was on quite a long time ago, actually. But I would be interested to see how it would work on stage. Yeah. Well, my overall view was A-plus cast, Mm. A-plus stately home, uh, (laughs) A-plus old person chatter, uh, you know, B-minus to C-minus everything else. Fair. (laughs) So for next week, what are you going to recommend me? Uh, I'm going to recommend you something really random and bizarre. So from elevated heights of quartet, I'm bringing you straight back down to the lowbrow children's television programme, Cheap in the Big City, which is like, you know, sometimes you have those memories from childhood where you're like, is that a dream? Or was that <laughs> Was that a real children's life? television programme? Yeah, or was it like a real TV show? So I had this with a programme called Woof that I was like, yeah, it was about a kid that turned into a dog and people used to be like, Anna, you've made that up. That wasn't a real TV show. And then it turns out Jack Whitehall's mum was in it. So Jack <laughs> Whitehall started talking about it on talk shows and I was like, see, I wasn't dreaming. And then this is similar. It's a cartoon programme about... It was on Cartoon Network and you know how... I don't know if you ever watched much Cartoon Network programmes. We there didn't was have a, it, no. It was a weird... You know they used to have Adult Swim, which was just like cartoons for grown-ups that kind of had a, a tone of like, ha-ha... The kids don't get this joke, but, mm. like, we do. It was never, like, raunchy or anything, just a bit, like, bizarre and out there, like, in the same way that SpongeBob SquarePants and something like that can sometimes be a bit like that. And Sheep in the Big City is kind of like that. So it's about a farmer who loses one of his sheep and the sheep runs away into the big city and there's these two war generals trying to catch the sheep because they have a sheep-powered ray gun and when they get the sheep, their ray gun will be able to destroy things. And they're called general, specific, and private public. <laughs> <laughs> and they're trying to find the sheep in the big city. So that's the plot. Okay. But there's all these weird digressions. So they have fake ad breaks. And they'll like <laughs> advertise like horrible products. And it's just weird. Like I don't know how to describe it properly, but like maybe watch one and okay. tell me tell me what you think about it. I'll I'll confirm whether or not you dreamed this <laughs> <laughs> next week. Tune in then. Thanks for listening to Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, iTunes, and Tumblr. All the links are at newstatesman.com/srsly. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? 
And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.